living God, we pray that you will fall afresh on each of us in this moment that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, all that we offer to you now in faith and in praise, that they may truly speak of our love for you and give expression to the wonder, the power, the joy of your creative, recreative, resurrection love. Amen. This morning's gospel lesson comes from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, picking up exactly where the lesson ended last Sunday on Easter, um, after Jesus had appeared and had a conversation with Mary Magdalene. And then the second reading will be from uh, the book of Acts in the uh, fourth chapter. Um, Speaking of the uh, worship last week and on Good Friday, I can't uh, help but note and uh, express on your behalf the great thanks of all of us, the members of our congregation and all who have uh, worshipped with us in recent days uh, for the wonderful and truly insightful, inspiring preaching on Good Friday um, by student pastor um, Heidi and on Easter Sunday from my associate, uh, beloved colleague Vanessa. Wonderful uh, sermons, uh, deeply inspiring. And uh, what a great gift to us and to our community. The passage from the Gospel of John this morning, uh, beginning at verse 19, uh, recounts the second experience in John's Gospel of Jesus' appearance of himself, his true self, on the day of his resurrection. Just as the children's message uh, given to us by Alex, that wonderful retelling of the story on the Emmaus Road, Luke's version of another appearance by Jesus on the day of his resurrection. In this one, uh, Jesus appears uh, to the disciples uh, later in the day and in the second half of the passage in a few days later. When it was evening on that day, that is to say the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of those Jews who were opposed to Jesus, and Jesus came and stood among them. Now bear in mind that Jesus and his disciples, of course, were all Jews, but there were other Jews who were opposed to Jesus. And it was out of fear for them, for they had collaborated with the Romans in the execution of Jesus, out of fear of these opponents of Jesus, his disciples were in a house where the door was locked. Now this is on the other side of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene had already appeared to them in the morning, telling them of her experience and proclaiming that I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he said these things to her. But in keeping with the practice of most men, even today, 
the testimony of Mary was disregarded or not really believed because even though she says that Christ has conquered death, still the men, the disciples, cower in fear later in the day behind locked doors. So Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed the disciples his hands and his side. And then, then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And having breathed on them, he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So this remarkable experience where Jesus appears among them, even despite the fact that the door was locked, he somehow appears. But it's not a phantasm. It's not a figment of their imagination. It's not a mass hallucination. uh, For he shows to them the physical marks of his suffering. And twice he says to them, peace. Peace. This deep, running power like the aquifers that run under the terra firma that supply the water to the land, this deep peace that runs beneath us all, which is the living presence of God. And then he breathed on them. Reminds us of the story in creation, doesn't it? Well, God took some mud and fashioned a human being. And then breathed into this mud, which became animated, the first human being. In the same way, that spirit that moved over the face of the deep and was infused into the mud, that same spirit, that The breath of God fills the disciples so that they can be sent on behalf of Jesus. So we pick up at verse 24. Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, well, we have seen the Lord. Somehow this seems to mean more Uh, than the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Mary had seen him early in the day. And now they say, we have seen him. But Thomas says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, or his forearms, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hands in his side, I will not believe, or I cannot believe. A week later, the disciples were again in the house, And Thomas was with them. And again, the doors are shut. 
post-Easter, after Easter, the disciples are still not really living with the freedom, the capacity to exercise their capacity in the gift of the Holy Spirit that has been breathed into them. They're still living in fear. And Thomas was with them. And the doors being shut, Jesus came and stood among them. And again he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas replied, My Lord and my God. Jesus then said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet will come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Amen. The image of doubting Thomas is so thoroughly a part of our consciousness and culture that individuals who've never darkened the doors of a church or heard a word of scripture are familiar with the term, don't be a doubting Thomas. It's really unfortunate, really, because Thomas, the twin, wants no more than the other disciples had asked, which was to see the wounds. Notice that the resurrected Christ is the wounded Christ. The resurrection does not undo the physical suffering or the moral injustice that's been visited upon Jesus. Rather, God raises Jesus even out of those physical afflictions and injuries and out of the immorality and injustice, the evil that had sought to defeat the purposes of God. It is the wounded Christ. It's only through his wounds that the disciples can truly understand that this is their friend, Jesus, now the Christ resurrected from the dead. But he's not doubting Thomas. He's asking for no more than the other disciples. His question is quite reasonable. And in fact, Jesus does not upbraid him. In fact, he appears so that he might encounter Thomas and encourage Thomas to stop being unbelieving and to become believing. This is the thing about Jesus. He keeps coming to us, no matter what our history is, or wherever we are in our life, whatever the circumstances of our life, he comes to us where we are, just as we are wounded, suffering, confused, stupid, 
He doesn't expect us to get all cleaned up and showered and shaved and polish our shoes and our Sunday best to prove to be worthy. He comes to us where we are, just as we are wounded. Jesus comes to us with patience in our woundedness. And his greeting to the disciples who had left him in his hour of need, had abandoned him to the hands of Rome, who left him high and dry, his greeting to them is not, where were you? What happened to you? How did you leave me all alone? When the Romans were on me, why didn't you help me? Why couldn't you at least be there when I die? He doesn't upbraid them. He greets them with what? Peace, love, acceptance, understanding, compassion, forbearance, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the final and fullest expression of love, is it not? And so Easter is a season because it takes us seven weeks, at least, the season is seven weeks long, at least seven weeks, or probably our whole lifetime, to come to terms with and to fully appreciate the joy and the real power, the transformative reality of what takes place on Easter Day. The tomb where death reigns supreme is overcome by the God of life and of love. The shadows are scattered by the light The hatred is overcome with love and forgiveness. Evil is overcome with forgiveness. Patience. Justice. So Easter is not just the lilies and the music and the bells and the wonders of a joyous day with a bunny rabbit who brings chocolate Easter eggs to all the boys and girls. Easter is the hinge moment in which history, human history, my history, your history, our history together as a people, turns in a different direction. Will we understand the radical implications of Jesus' teaching about what are the greatest commandments? To love God when he's asked, to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. On these two, says Jesus, depend all the law and commandments. And so that radical idea about caring for and loving one another unconditionally and without any boundaries is really the repercussion of the resurrection. From the book of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke's story in the Acts follows right upon the Gospels. It recounts the experiences of these disciples in the first years following his resurrection as they come to terms with and understand the implications of Jesus' life death, and resurrection. 
Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This Joseph, now named Barnabas, sold a field that belonged to him, And then he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. This radical portrayal of the communitarian nature of the early followers of Jesus, a very small band of people in Jerusalem who have finally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, emerged from the house where the doors are locked and are in the community and preaching the good news of his resurrection— beaten about the head by the Romans and imprisoned uh, John and Peter for their preaching at the temple and their healing of a cripple. But they're living together. They are in a moment when they do not know exactly what is happening around them. Many of them lived in the full expectation of the imminent return of Jesus. They thought he would return in any day, any moment. It was an imminent event to which they looked forward. And so in this radical adherence to the teachings of Jesus, they shared everything in common. Now, it's apparent from the rest of the book of Acts that this brief experiment in communitarian living lasted for just a brief period of time. But nevertheless, the sense that people held a deep responsibility to each other remains the bedrock of the early movement, which would become known later as the church. People gathered in one of those houses to worship. They shared what today we would call potluck suppers, these community meals, which each brought what they had to share. Individuals owned their own homes, but they shared those homes freely and fully with each other, and they lived in a deep sense of their responsibility for each other. The ideas of rugged individualism, of local autonomy, the ideas of unfettered capitalism, the ideas of don't get mad, get even, the ideas of not paying attention to your neighbor but doing everything you can to feather your own nest, you will not find any of these in the scriptures. They are so much a part of our culture 
particularly in these opening decades of the 21st century, that it's important for us to recognize the degree to which the church stands for a different reality. That our primary responsibility is to the common good. That we think about the needs of others, not just of ourselves. That we recognize as disciples of the resurrected Christ, we will pay price just as Christ paid a price in his own death for us, so we too must learn to put aside some of that which we think is mine and to let it go for the common good. To ask What will best serve my neighbor? Not what will best preserve my wealth and resources. It's a radical idea. It's a repercussion to which we do not pay, I think, sufficient attention, have not historically paid sufficient attention, And in the growing disparity between the rich and the very, very poor, in the ultra-uber-rich, and those in the middle who are increasingly squeezed in a vice, it's something that as a nation we need to to come to grips with. It is, I believe, one of the radical repercussions of the resurrection. So, too, in our daily living. Rather than looking always for the advantage in the current circumstances, to ask ourselves each day, what can I do in my own sphere, my own little corner of the universe to make life lighter and better for another? To think globally, but to act locally where we can. Jesus was resurrected in a particular spot and appeared to particular people. It was a very small group of people that was following Jesus. Twelve true adherents, maybe 70 at most, So it doesn't start with tens of thousands, throngs of millions. The kind of change that is wrought by the resurrection begins in small and particular and faithful living. Never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world, said Margaret Mead. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I think the repercussions of the resurrection 
are proof positive of Margaret Mead's insight. We are part of that small band of believers that yeast in the loaf that can change human history right here, right now, where we live. Amen.